Welcome to the FedHeads, a weekly podcast from Grant Thornton Public Sector. Join the FedHeads each week as Robert Shea and a celebrity guest host talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it. Welcome everyone to another episode of FedHeads. I'm Robert Shea and I'm delighted to be joined again by my friend and guest host Charles Cooper, Managing Director at the Signal Group. I'm delighted to be here. Very excited about this conversation. So you know better than I do that one of the biggest challenges facing the government, America, business, is cybersecurity. Federal government will spend more contract dollars on cybersecurity than probably on anything else. Um, And we're joined by Jack Scott, manager at Grant Thornton and the founder and content creator of Outpost Gray, who keeps us and everybody else posted on the latest developments in this arena. Jax, thanks for being with us. Robert, it is my pleasure. Excited to be here. Excited to be with you and Charles today. This will be a fun discussion. So before we dive into Outpost Gray and cyber, you've got fascinating background, not all of which you can share, but can you give us a taste of your background? Sure. So I'll do the summarized version for everyone listening. So I joined the military in my early 20s. And during that time, that was actually how I broke into IT. And then that is what moved me into cybersecurity. I actually got into IT in about 2008, moving from one branch of the military into another. During that time, there was a program in 2010 that was for an all women's elite special forces program called the Cultural Support Team. And I applied for it. I was one of the first group of women that were selected to be part of this all-volunteer, formalized program that fell under the Special Operations Command. And for anybody listening, why this is so interesting is because women were not allowed into combat roles at this time. We were still not allowed to apply for certain positions in the military because they were only male-dominated roles. So this really put my military career into the special operations space, which then I started working. My primary missions was gathering intelligence off of the women and children in the Middle East. And that led me down the intel path, which then led me into what we call in the cybersecurity space a cyber threat intel. And so I was starting to leverage some of my IT knowledge with my intelligence um, skill sets. And I was able to package that up and I started working the federal government as cyber threat intel until about 2021. And then I decided to start my own firm, Outpost Gray, really started picking up. And we started doing consulting work on the side, really focused in the federal space, like CMMC and helping with compliance. And fast forward, I had a great opportunity to join Grant Thornton as, like you said, the cybersecurity manager. And I was able to take Outpost Gray with me. And so Outpost Grade now is a YouTube channel that is in partnership with Grant Thornton. And I work with Grant Thornton to provide information in cybersecurity, technology, and innovation. So love being here. Great. That's awesome. Uh, I actually read a little bit about you before our podcast here and found out all the incredible work you're, you've done to uh, sort of really strengthen the workforce within the cyber world, especially to help recruit more women into the cyberspace. I'm curious, you know, what what is happening from a workforce standpoint? We hear so much about funding and technology and the risk that's out there. How about the workforce? Yeah, there is a lot of work getting done in the cybersecurity space to increase diversity in the space. 
I know that the numbers are rough. I'm going to say these are roughly the numbers because if you look on CyberSN, for example, is a great site to go to. And the individual that runs that organization, Deidre Diamond, is really focused on diversity, bringing women and other minorities into the cybersecurity space. And we've already seen such a substantial growth from the lens of a woman that even just three to five years ago, I think the numbers were around five to 10%, but now we're up to about 20 to 25% of women moving into this space. And this isn't just women working in, I call it the softer skills, uh, maybe GRC or help desk or like analyst level or SOC one level. We're seeing women that are actually coming in as pen testers and doing some more of those technical roles. So the big push right now, it, it's really, Charles, it's really about educating. And then something that I do is I, on Outpost Gray, every month I have a highlight series and I highlight a woman that's been in the innovation and technology space for between five, 15 years plus that are breaking those glass ceilings for women. And I, I want to bring them on the show to share their stories because I think we need to have more of a voice for women and a, a bigger platform to allow them to share their accomplishments of what they've done in their space. That's great. I think you mentioned this already, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, CMMC. I bring it up because it seems to me, from an outsider's point of view, one of the most drama-filled programs launched in the government. It seemed a little clunky. There was a lot of personnel issues but what, what is the program and what's its status today? Oh, woo, I love it. So, yes, you're absolutely right. The CMMC has been a lot of drama. Uh, just for everybody listening, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model is an accreditation body that is a nonprofit that was designed to secure our supply chain within the defense industrial base, so the federal space. So anybody that's wanting to do contracts in the federal space, you will have to receive a CMMC certification. And there's three different tiers to that as how, how it was designed. It was initially designed with five, and then it moved to three. When it first was rolled out, there were a lot of issues with some of the staffing. Since then, it has really been cleaned up since we got our new CEO in there, Matthew Travis. I think it's Matthew Travis. Um, since he's come on board, and since we did a we did basically a pause last fall on the whole entire CMMC rollout uh, for the accreditation body to reassess and figure out what is going to be the best framework for us to be able to actually roll this out to be impactful in the dip space. And right now, they're looking at finishing out the interim rule and the DFARS rules that should be finalized by fourth quarter by the end of this year. We'll see if that is likely to happen. Once that happens, what I believe will happen is in the first quarter of next year, 2023, we'll then start seeing mandates for contracts that are currently in place or the new contracts to start having that CMMC certification at that point. We'll see. That's great. I have I have one question about just prioritization. You're, you're in so many pieces of sort of the cyber ecosystem. I'm curious, from a, from a government investment standpoint, where should people be prioritizing? What, would sh what should we be looking at and making sure that, uh, that we're focused on it based on sort of the existing threat analysis, analysis and everything else? Mm. My first thought that came to mind for the federal space specifically 
would be zero trust because that is the big initiative. Um, there was a document or memorandum that came out stating that organizations in the federal space need to be within zero trust by 2023. I believe that we need to be hyper-focused on getting into zero trust, uh, network segmentation, segmenting our networks, segmenting data in a proper way, but then also looking at the impacts of CMMC and what that's going to look like in the near term for us, especially within the contracting space. I want to get even nerdier on governance of cyber in the executive branch of the federal government. There's always been difficulty pinning down where responsibility for the enterprise of government's approach to cyber security is. It now seems to be settled that it's CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure mm-hmm. Security Agency. But National Security Agency's got a role, OMB's got a role, OSTP's got a role, NSF's got a role, you mentioned DOD. Can you talk about how you view the governance over cyber in the federal government? Oh, this is such a murky place. You, What I'm starting to see is that CISA is starting to have a lot more placed onto their platter of responsibilities. And we saw it especially within the last executive order that came out May of last year. It was screaming CISA. Uh, There was an an area in the executive order, I think it was section three, where where they were talking about having a single point, a single repository for conducting reporting for incident response. I believe that that's not CISA's role. I think that CISA can't take that on. I don't think that Jen Easterly wants to take that on. I think that, and I don't know if this is possible, I've kind of talked about this and circulated it. Maybe you can help me with this, Robert. But I'm thinking maybe we need to have a separate element that brings all of these units together, the NSA, the DHS, the the CISAs, and bring them together into a unit, and we create a separate element that then handles the cybersecurity element, the policies, the procedures. Because where we're going, where the adversaries are going, where our threatscape is going, everything is changing so rapidly. I think it's too challenging where we're at right now to be able to handle everything. And we're not doing an effective job at it as is. That's why I think maybe the oversight needs to be centralized, but we have key members coming in from all of those other organizations, including academia and the private sector, not forgetting those guys. Yeah, so rationalizing that governance structure ensuring someone's accountable, but that it's also sufficiently agile going forward. So what are the key additional things the government needs to do to address this evolving threat? Well, one of the key things, and I I think it was even stated in the executive order, one of the big areas is data sharing. And I have witnessed it from my time being in the military. I supported Atlantic Resolve in 2019 which is an Eastern Europe operation working with our NATO partners. And I was doing cyber and electronic warfare. And just so you know, electronic warfare actually falls under a similar umbrella of permissions and authorities as cyber does. While I was working in that space, one of the areas that I saw that was very challenging is there was not communication going on between the public and the private sector, the commercial side and the federal side. I know that we're working on it, I know that it was brought up in the executive order. I don't know how that's going to be resolved, but I think for us to come together as a collective, as cybersecurity professionals, to be able to defend 
our infrastructures and defend our borders better against a cyber attack, I think communication sharing is going to be a critical piece. I just don't know what that answer looks like. I don't think anybody does right now because you guys both know there's a lot of sensitive information that the federal government has. How are you going to share that with the commercial sector and vice versa? And we, we have ISACs. We have things like that. That's helping. Absolutely. But we need we need some we need more data sharing with that critical data, with that sensitive data. But I don't know what that looks like yet. I've been so impressed with how the gov- federal government's taking sort of a whole whole of government approach to cybersecurity. Now it's not just DHS and DOD and the Intel uh, community that's focused on it. It's really every agency in the federal government, which I think is really important. One question I have, the government's never seen as an entity that's sort of uh, leading on innovation. And innovation and uh, sort of staying ahead of the curve is obviously the essential tool in countering our adversaries in the cyberspace. I'm curious, is enough happening from an innovation side of things and a technology side that we are staying ahead of the curve and winning that battle? Mm. Yes and no. What's enough? Um, yeah, that's like what is enough because you've got organization like Softworks. It's a civilian unit, an organization that comes together that uh, brings in innovation for the Special Operations Command. And I cannot remember what the uh, the work stands for, but Special Operational Forces Softworks, and they have it for the Air Force as well. It's out, actually out here in D.C. They will bring in innovators, and then they will then provide these innovations, a platform to work with or get a contract with the federal government. The the challenges that I've seen working on the federal side as a soldier trying to acquire a piece of technology is the time that it takes to acquire it. Uh, The overall process is so time consuming that the, by the time that you receive that piece of equipment, it's already legacy within this space. So I think that we need to speed up the overall innovation process. We need to have, we need to be more agile and flexible on how we're doing the analysis and improving this type of software or um, technology that we're bringing into the space. And then we need to have, and this is actually happening right now. I cannot remember the name of it. The reserves is spearheading this. But there is now going to be an entity that the reserves have that will tie together the education, government officials, and private sector individuals together to help spearhead and educate our congressional leaders on innovation and the importance of innovation while educating academia, so college students, on the importance of why innovation is so critical for our federal system so we can not so much stay ahead of the cyber criminal because that's never going to happen, but be better prepared for what we're moving into in the next three to five years in the technology space. I think that's so important because I think, you know, in D.C. and from my sort of policy world, we, we judge everything based on funding. And I'm not sure that necessarily always does the trick. Yeah, you're right. And especially with the threat evolving, you'll never uh, have money focused on the right places all the time. You need to be flexible. You got time for like one more question, pull rank and ask it. Um, administration has an enormous drive towards improving the customer experience of Americans that are getting access to services and programs from the government. One of the major tools is logging in, providing verification of your identity and a lot of personal information to verify your eligibility for various programs. And this is a huge vulnerability for Americans and the 
programs administered by government agencies. Where are we on improving identity verification so we can meet Americans where they are in applying for programs and benefits? Mm. We're not where we're supposed to be. That I can definitely tell you, Robert, is we are we're behind in the aspect that we still have organizations, for example, we still have organizations that use Windows Vista on their systems. We still have organizations in the federal government that don't use multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication was mentioned in the most recent executive order. And it's in it surprising that we are not using multi-factor authentication in the federal space at all like that. We should be spearheading my opinion. I believe that our federal government should be spearheading some of these changes, not the other way around. And so until we see multi-factor authentication, uh, we need to do a better job at securing our data of the the consumers that we have. I don't think that's getting done. The last time I looked at an IT environment in the federal space, it was in a way, we'll just call it, it was legacy in a way that in the way of what you can see right now in current time in the commercial space or even in some federal other organizations. Another thing that we have to remember too is the federal government is extremely siloed. So one organization, say uh, DHS, might be doing it right. They may have multi-factor authentication. They might be segmenting their data. They might be using DS login to authenticate their users, but that's not going to be the, the same across the DOD because we don't ever have a DOD rule that encompasses everything. So we have that challenge of all these siloed ecosystems doing their own thing and we know how an infrastructure works if somebody can break into dhs who's to say they can't get into department of state because they're all underneath that dod infrastructure so it's it's so much bigger it's a great question it's very hard to answer (laughs) well there's plenty to talk about all i can say is i'm i'm glad you're at grant thornton i'm looking forward to working with you but i've learned a lot in this last few minutes it's an enormous challenge i'm glad you're working on it It's been great. Thank you so much. Uh, Really fascinating conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Robert and Charles. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Fed Heads, brought to you by Grant Thornton Public Sector. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter at GP Public Sector to join the conversation. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.